Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by Adrian Lovett, President and Chief Executive of the World Wide Web Foundation. His 20-year career in international development and advocacy has focused on delivering policy change on complex global issues. Prior to joining the Web Foundation, Adrian played key leadership roles in successful campaigns such as Make Poverty History and the Jubilee 2000 campaign to cancel the debts of developing countries. He has also held senior roles at Oxfam and Save the Children. Adrian, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Paul. Good to be here. So, Adrian, is the internet a lawless free-for-all? And uh, what can be done about it? Well, is it? Um, No. (laughs) Um, It once was. And some people felt that was a beautiful time. Um, And there were certainly very special aspects of the internet back in the early days when it really was a a permissionless space. And indeed, Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the World Wide Web and who's the, the founder of the Web Foundation that I lead, he intended it to be that. But over the years, you know, it has changed uh, in some ways for the better, some ways for the worse. There's obviously an incredible wealth of information, uh, so much stuff that we can all access and that, you know, that, that, that my teenage kids take for granted now, the fact that they don't have to go to the library when they need to do the homework. <laughs> they don't even have to set a video. Exactly. When I used to have to set the video for Dallas, if the football ran late, we'd miss the last 10 minutes there of Dallas. Go. Yeah, I know. And, and they don't understand any of that. They just don't understand. <laughs> um, so, yeah, things have changed for the better. Things like Wikipedia, all these incredible things we, we find on the web that, that uh, make our lives better, enable us to make a living, enable us to claim our human rights, all, all kinds of things. But also a lot of challenges. You know, and we all know many of those, the, the ways in which we are becoming too close perhaps to our devices and to the the constant uh, scrolling of our lives um, and the ways in which our data might be at risk, the ways in which we're vulnerable to misinformation um, online and fake news and the way that affects our democracy or our, our personal lives, and all sorts of challenges. So, so you know, what we're trying to do um, with Tim and with the Web Foundation is to say there is a brilliant thing at the heart of this, a brilliant idea, his great idea. He gave the web to the world for free, 30 years ago. Um, and that's an incredible gift. And we ought to cherish it. We ought to, to nourish it. And we ought to value it and fight for it. And we may need to fight for it. And that's what the Web Foundation's about. So when you say fight for it, who are you fighting and what are you fighting for? Well, I think, you know, th- that's a good question. I think, I think in some ways we are fighting against um, some governments who want to control the web to a to a excessive degree. Who want so kind to, of reactionary, totalitarian, authoritarian yep. regime. And there's more and more of that. You know, we're seeing more shutdowns of the Internet, double last year compared to the previous year, uh, where governments just, you know, when there's an election going on or a bit of unrest or whatever, they'll shut down the Internet at massive, usually a massive overreaction um, to, to a problem. So there's those challenges from governments. There's challenges from companies, large and small companies, uh, some of which are, you know, caught up in that whole process of disseminating uh, news that may not be true, information that may not be real, um, and, and also, you know, uh, companies that are responsible for uh, looking after our data and don't always do so. And I'm sure we can come back to some of that. But actually, I think we're also probably fighting against apathy. I think, you know, we're, we're all, as, as citizens, we're all users of the web. And it's very easy for us just to sort of take it for granted, like the air that we breathe. 
But it isn't like that. You know, it's not always going to be there in the form that that, that is most useful for, to to us in the form that it that makes it a, a public good worth defending, like like clean water and and being able to go to school and so on. So we have to we have to work for that, and I think part of that is is recognizing that uh, we all have a role to play in that. I always say it's a bit like you know you go out in the street and uh, there's a job for governments to do to put up the the speed limit signs and and set the rules of the road and so on. There's a job for companies to do to to build vehicles that are safe and get us from A to B and so on. And then there's the rest, which is not only all of us, you know, yes, obeying the rules and driving the cars in the right way, but more than that, actually figuring out how we navigate around each other, those kind of courtesies and social norms and so on, which we've managed to build over decades or even centuries in the real world. No surprise, perhaps, that we're struggling a bit with that in the virtual world that we've only had 10, 15, 20 years uh, to, 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 to work on. Um, so I think there's a big job for all of us to do as, as human beings, uh, while there's also very important stuff for companies and for governments to do to, to make, make sure we have a, a web that we want. I mean, we live in an incredibly globalised environment now, and, and the internet has, has clearly enabled that to, to such a point now where almost nation, nation-state governments, countries don't necessarily mean anything. I mean, 10 years ago, I bought something from uh, Argentina or something on the internet and paid via PayPal, and it didn't arrive. And then it, there was, I got into a dispute with the vendor. And it struck me then that my government could do nothing to help me, that the only uh, recourse was an American company, and, and they were applying kind of, you know, West Coast Silicon Valley type ethics to it and that you know like if you and I have a dispute and I lend you 20 pounds and you don't pay it I can take you to the local court but that just doesn't matter anymore it it truly is a globalized environment yeah and I think we've got to recognize the limits of of national governments and national legislation and laws and so on given that that the very global nature of the internet as you say but that doesn't mean that we can't have some some norms some expectations uh and some standards and actually something that that uh with 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 Sir Tim, we've been doing in the last few months is this idea of a contract for the web, which we've managed to get hundreds of uh, companies and uh, civil society groups and, and governments involved in that says, first of all, there's a set of principles that should uh, be used to guide how we organize activity on the World Wide Web. And then secondly, that there's a set of uh, concrete commitments that those governments, those companies, and all of us as citizens can make to defend and to protect that those founding principles for the web. Um, so that starts to be, you know, it, that that isn't about creating legislation that should apply in every country in the world, but it is about establishing some norms and some expectations that might cut across uh, across national borders. And what are those norms? Then I mean, because isn't isn't trying to get those to corral those governments a bit like herding cats? You know, like for example, you know, denial of the Holocaust. In my view, is it, well. It's criminal offence in Germany and France and so on, but it's not in America. In fact, they would uphold your right to say it, loathsome though it is, given the, uh, the, the First Amendment. Yeah, and that, so we do have to recognise there are different cultural norms, different historical experiences in different countries. And I think that there's been for, for a long time a kind of ability to, to span uh, those different experiences um, to a point. But I think where that stops, uh, I think people increasingly agree, is where there is content uh, that that uh, directly threatens an individual uh, or a group of people, uh, where there's where there's content that is deliberately designed to to mislead, to deceive, in order to make money or in order to influence an election or whatever. So there are various ways in which I think standards can be applied that can basically raise everyone's game um, and ensure that we have uh, an online experience that is much more true to the, the founding spirit of the World Wide Web.
And how does that work in the the age of kind of self-censorship? Because I remember when The Guardian launched their website 20 years ago, it offered you the option to click the X on sport because I don't like sport. I consider it to be a waste of time. I don't want my Guardian homepage to have the screen acreage wasted by sport. But of course, you can then take that self-censorship to the ultimate extent and sort of, you know, say you're not interested in so many different types of policy areas. So you're just left with a very narrow feed. Look at Facebook's news feed now where you, you can get a Republican news feed and a Democrat news feed and they're completely different. Has it contributed to all the polarization of society. Yeah, I think I think particularly in the last sort of 5 to 10 years uh, in the life now 30 year lifetime of the web with the the advance of of social media platforms that has happened. And that does, you know, there's a responsibility for companies to uh, to to figure that. But there's also, you know, coming back to the earlier point, I think it's for all of us to worry about that. You know, we all know that if we only ever eat um, potatoes or chips or, you know, or even if we only ever eat fruit, that's not going to be good for us. You've got to have a balanced diet, right? And the same is true with information. I think, you know, uh, just as we all want to kind of, we want, we, we all do, the vast majority of people see ourselves as, as decent people who want to do right by ourselves and, and other people and, and be healthy and so on. Well, that should come to the, the, the information, the news that we consume as well. Um, you know, and I, I, I always try to, um, you know, to follow stuff that I know I'm going to disagree with. Um, it's good the, when you read a good columnist in a nice broadsheet where you know you're going to disagree with them, but they're going to put it really well. Yeah. And it'll irk you as to why you can't quite articulate why they're wrong. Absolutely. Is access to the internet a kind of basic human right? And is that one of the things that the foundation campaigns for? Yeah, we think it is. Um, You know, I've spent the last 20 years or so um, working, fighting for things like uh, clean water for everybody and electricity and the chance for every child to go to school and so on. And one of the reasons why I'm excited about what we're doing with, with Tim and with the Web Foundation is that I think there's every reason to argue that access to the internet and and a good internet, an internet that serves people, um, is a basic right and is potentially as profound as those uh, those as meeting those basic needs. In some cases it's the way that people will make those meet those basic needs. You know, if you think about how even in um, some of the less developed countries, increasingly if you want to apply for a job you may well have to send an email. You may even have to submit a, a photo or a video, uh, a, a statement by video or whatever. Um, and if you can't get online, then you're immediately disadvantaged. There was a, there was a, a kid that our team worked with in, in Pretoria in South Africa uh, a couple of years ago that the team were telling me about when I joined the Web Foundation. He um, was about 10 years old and uh, he was disappearing every night uh, from his home for several hours um, and nobody was quite sure where he was going and eventually uh, his parents established that he was going several miles across town to a, a free Wi-Fi hotspot and he was going online um, and his parents said to him you know what well, you could play football around the corner with your friends what are you doing and he said this is apparently were his words he said uh, I live in a shack when I go online I don't live in a shack and you know the, the 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 idea that that kind of conjures up for me of the of the potential of the imagination the creativity that can be unlocked by the world wide web by the internet um and the way that people can be everything that they can be and be truly themselves uniquely themselves perhaps in a way that they wouldn't be able to just in their local community because of cultural norms and prejudice and all the rest of it but also ways that they can actually just get out there and uh, you know have a good idea and maybe 
make a living out of it. Uh, you know, we've we've seen countless examples of that through our work at the Web Foundation too. So, you know, I th- I think it it should be seen as a basic right, um, and that's something we need to fight for. And by the way, only half the world has got that right now. You know, we're at this moment. Just in the in the last year, we've passed this what we call a fifty fifty moment. For the first time, more than half the world are online. Which is a great moment. It's a moment to say, goodness me. And Tim, Tim would say, as, as, as the founder of the, the, the Internet, the uh, founder of the World Wide Web, he would say uh, he never expected that we would get this far. Um, but now we've come to this halfway point. We have to push on and make sure we get the whole world connected because, you know, the deep inequality that we already see in the world is only going to get much worse if we, if we allow that digital divide to, to widen as well. That will drive other kinds of inequality too. So we need a real hard effort to ensure that we reach those hardest to reach people, whether they're in rural areas, whether it's women rather than men who are less likely, women are less likely to be online, girls rather than boys, um, whether it's uh, you know people of particular groups who are less likely to get online, all kinds of uh, uh, fronts that we've got to we've got to take that fight to um, because I think if we if we leave people behind then we're saying they're not going to get all those other things that they really ought to be able to access to from basic education to health care to the, the means of earning a living too. I mean the internet and the web has changed humanity in such profound ways you know we have a president who's popular on Twitter and uses Twitter to completely cut out all of these communications professionals and speak directly with his base you know when you look at uh, there's almost no turning back isn't there and where do you think it is going to go for the next 10 20 years because we're starting to see people disconnect from social media we're starting to see that for all the benefits of of the web that a lot of young people are suffering from you know self-harm issues and, and and mental health issues because of social media, uh, always on culture. You know, the, uh, some people in France have this automatic uh, email responder on a weekend that says your email has been deleted. Please send on Monday and all that, you know, which I quite admire. Mm-hmm. You know, but is it just that we're, we're getting used to the Internet still as a society and as a people? Yeah, I think we are. I mean, I think there are, there are some seeds of those kind of trends that we can see were already sown before the Internet. You know, if you look at the... Those studies of 20 or so years ago, what was there, the, the, the great book called Bowling Alone that looked at how Americans used to go bowling together to the temp in bowling, and then increasingly they were just going on their own. Um, you always win if you're playing alone. That's true. I've noticed that, actually. I'm very good. I always come back. Um, but, um, you know, so some of those, so some of the things we now say are, oh, well, look, that's social media, that's Facebook, that's Google or whatever um, that has caused that. I, I think, you know, we have to distinguish between, um, you know, ways in which those problems have been exacerbated um, and and potentially made worse. We've got to distinguish that uh, from the actual root causes of those problems. But yes, I I think, you know, it's hard to predict where we'll be in 20 years' time or even five years' time. Um, But I think it's fair to say that we will see more communities um, online, whether it's on social media platforms or, or around websites or whatever. You know, we'll see more connections between people who define themselves uh, by a particular factor as being in common with someone else or a group of people. And I think that's potentially a really good thing. You know, the fact that, um, you know, for example, people who are, if you're, if, you're, if you're gay and you're in a particular country where it's very difficult to be out, then the only way that you're probably able to really express yourself is by being part of a community online. And that's profoundly important, and that's allowing people to be themselves, perhaps for the for the first time. And over time, of course, that can then ripple out and and start to break down those, that 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 wider prejudice. So, um, you know, I think those communities are really important. But I hope also that there 
the the notion of the web and the internet as a as a true public space will be maintained and i think we need to we need to work for that so when i said talked earlier about wikipedia something like wikipedia which is for everyone that everyone can access that almost everyone agrees is is solid reliable information trusted um and that is there not for someone's profit uh not for someone's particular political interest or whatever it's just there for the good of the world, for, for, for knowledge. But those kind of places and spaces on the web are still as strong as they are now, and if not stronger. Could you go into a bit more detail on this contract for the web that you, the foundation is producing? I mean, is, is it just for governments and civil society, or is it for individuals to sign up to, and you know, internet service providers, and of course the behemoths like Facebook, Amazon, Google, and so on? Yeah, it is. It's for all of those. And actually, we're, we're just at a really interesting stage. Uh, we're, we're working our way through... Uh, oh, there's been lots of, you know working groups and and uh, uh, conversations involving lots of the organizations that have already signed on to the core principles of the contract for the web and that does include those big companies like Twitter and, and Facebook and Google and um, Microsoft and so on it also includes some governments like the French government the Germans the British um, and others coming on board and some great civil society organizations uh, but it also includes thousands of individual citizens people who use the web uh who want to to protect it and uh, and they've signed on you, you can sign on at contractfortheweb.org it's really easy to do um and then we want to get people involved and 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 you know the the relatively easy part is to say what are the top line principles oh, you, you know? preempted my next question what are they genuinely <laughs> well okay so so we've got one principle that's that's agreed on which is that we need to make sure we can get everyone online that everyone can get online that it's something that is for everyone uh that there's a, a universal dimension to, to to the web there's a principle around privacy and respecting privacy and defending that which is really important as we know at the moment uh there's a principle in there about um companies building tech solutions that work for humanity uh, rather than against it, which is, of all of the principles that we've laid out, that's the one where some people sort of roll their eyes and go, oh, yeah, okay, what's that then? So, you know, the devil is in the detail on, on something like that. But those are, those are the kinds of principles we're talking about. What we're now thrashing out is, so under each of those principles, what are the concrete commitments that companies can make, that governments can make, and that we all as citizens can make too? And that's the idea of it being a contract, you know, the notion of saying that if, if you do your bit and they do their bit and I do my bit, then maybe we can come to to something that is good for everyone, that is good for all of us and, and better than what we have now. And, and this isn't criticising any one particular government or any one particular party in any country, but do, do government even have the know-how to make these kind of decisions? Because... To, to me, when you when you think when I think of any generic government minister, I assume they don't really know what they're talking about in terms of uh, do they have the digital know how to make those right decisions? It's it's the people in Silicon Valley that have the knowledge, is it not? Well, I think it varies a lot for sure, and and we've all seen examples of you know American senators asking Mark Zuckerberg how how the how Facebook works, and he says we sell ads, senator. We've all seen that. Um, uh, and yes, there are there are people who are not very savvy in governments all around the world about tech stuff. There are some who are who, who do know what they're talking about, and there are some governments who who are quite advanced uh, on this stuff. Uh, I think that the the the, the potential is in um, the tech community bringing their expertise and policymakers bringing theirs, which should be around understanding how to build. Um, uh, policy solutions that are going to work for a large number of people and improve their lives and try to marry those two together and then also bring into that to make it a triangle 
people who actually use the web, um, whether they're represented by organizations like, like Access Now and Mozilla and, and, and others who are great, great organizations that, uh, that are part of this process too, um, or whether they're just involved individually as individual citizens. And I think if we can put that triangle together, that could be quite powerful. Who would you consider a bigger get to, to sign up? Would it be the government of Finland, for example, or would it be Alphabet, who, own, who are obviously behind Google? Well, Google have signed up uh, to the principles and, and they're in the process, they're in the, the conversations, the working groups that we're having now to, to work out the, the detailed commitments. And I hope that they will, uh, and the others, will stay the course and uh, be part of the final full contract for the web. Um, so I don't think there's any one uh, big get. I think you know it, it's intended to be a little bit of a... A, you know, a kind of a, a coalition of the willing. We we don't want to just try to browbeat a particular government to come in if they're just going to make a nuisance of themselves. You know? Yes. Um, th- there does have to be a, 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 a something of a genuine uh, signal of commitment to those those core principles that, that, that it, this is about respecting people's rights. This is about uh, understanding the, the web as a public good that should serve humanity, not one government or one company or whatever um all of that is important so so you know we're not we're not just going to take everyone we do have a bit of a bar is the problem with the principles that you, you know you that and this is not to criticize you it's, it's anyone that would drop a kind of sovereign document if you look at the constitution of the united states the more specificity there is the more people are going to be divided on the other hand the more broad the principles are they're going to be subject potentially retrospectively or even mischievously to reinterpretation. So how do you strike that balance between the right level of specificity? I'm surprised I was able to pronounce that word, but I got it's, it. It's a good word. Thanks well very much. Very good. <laughs> I, it's, it's a, you know, I, I think in, in everything I've done in my work, you know, you realise more and more that it's all about balance. Balance is a, is a craft, you know, and, and it's a... It's a An art, not a science. Yes, I think that's right. And it's a worthy uh, and, and noble enterprise trying to find balance. Um, and I think that's that's what we've got to apply here. You know, we've, we've got to um, be serious about those principles, um, but we've also got to uh, bring them into real contexts that, that actually affect the behavior of governments and of companies and, and of, of all of us. And that's not going to be easy. You know, that, that, that's, we've, we've, got to, we've got to work at that. But I think, you know, if we had only if we'd stopped at the principles, then yes, we'd have a, a declaration of independence or a you know, a, 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 you know some lofty thing. Which there's a place for that. That's important. We need to set direction. But I think if we'd stopped there with the contract for the web, that wouldn't be enough. That said, if we just dive straight into the the concrete commitments without spending some time articulating those commitments, then there's no kind of there's no compass. Um, so I think you have to try and do both and. We'll see how, how how well it comes out, but I'm optimistic that it's gonna it's gonna help us build a, a better web than the one we have. Do you think that we've learned as a species now that we can't trust the digital giants to protect our data privacy? There seems to be a, an arms race between the hackers and and the, you know the people that hold our data. My uh, car insurance company was hacked recently, and I gather my car details are on some you know file that someone can buy on Bitcoin. And it seems to me once those once that information has gone, it's it's non negotiable. It's out there. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely, number one, there are bad people out there uh, who, who, who intend to do harm. My view is that they're, they're not huge in number, but they're definitely there and they can have a grossly disproportionate impact beyond the, their numbers. Then there are people who are, you know, just um, 
seeing an opportunity um, such as the people that some of some of the you know teenagers in many cases who were disseminating some of the early uh, fake news stories uh, out of Macedonia or wherever um, that uh, that affected the 2016 election in the US you know they just saw an opportunity realizing that uh, you know putting a putting a story on the web that said was headlined um, Hillary Clinton is unwell was going to get more clicks than uh, something that said something that was true um, and the clicks meant revenue that's what they did um, so I, I think I, I don't think those are necessarily evil people um, they're people who aren't helping clearly uh, to make sure the web is something that's good for everyone uh, but the solutions to that I think are around fixing those those system faults um, that, that incentivize the wrong things and that's for the companies and for governments to to, to focus on and are there limits to your influence? I mean, I imagine, you know, the government of Denmark, I don't know who they are, but they'll be quite agreeable. Uh, I'm making a Scandinavian generalisation there. But <laughs> you then, can't you be know, sure of anyone these well, days, You can't. That's absolutely a fair point well made. Um, you know, but I'm, you know, I go to the obvious culprits, like if you go up against the likes of China and Russia with the spread of fake news, how can you reason them out of a position that they don't want to be reasoned out of? Well, I think that's where, as I said earlier, you know, that there is a bit of a sense of we're trying to, start with the, uh, the, the the critical mass, and we think there is a critical mass of both governments and companies and, and all of us as citizens who who do have a sense of, of, of those values being important uh, on the web, on, on in our internet lives of respect for human rights and for human dignity and, and freedom of expression and so on. So I think that's where our attention is focused and we'll build it there. And I think if we can, if we can get ahead of steam there, then we'll see where we go from, from there. So are you kind of spending your time in the problematic areas in a sense that you don't concern yourself with Denmark because they're a, a you know, mature society and everyone gets on great, you know, and there's freedom of speech and so on. It's more about the, what we would, I would consider to be the problematic countries. It's a, it's it's a mix, you know. I think we we need the champions. We need those who who want to you know, who are taking the right path. Estonia, for example, is a you know relatively small country, but really good on these issues. Really uh, tech minded, um, has has really led the way in a lot of innovative delivery of government services and so on. Um, you know, they're an important co- country to have involved in something like this because um, because you want the champions. Yeah, they um, could be a beacon, absolutely, an ambassador. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, but we also want to make sure that we're really. Uh, hitting on countries where you know a real difference can be made, either because they're big uh, or because they have they have real influence uh, in the world beyond their size, um, arguably such as something like the UK. So you know, I think it's a it's a case of getting that that balance. And you mentioned the fifty fifty target. Uh, that's incredibly interesting because isn't the the remaining fifty percent going to be the most difficult? Isn't that where growth is going to be slowed? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, you know. One of the really interesting things I've found in the last couple of years doing this job with the with the Web Foundation is that you know I ask all sorts of people who know far more about this than I do who understand the adoption of the internet, the increased uh, take up of the internet around the world, and you know there's been a kind of the beginnings of an S curve. I'm I'm doing it with my hand as you can see here. It's great great on a podcast, um, <laughs> uh, which which is you know there's been an increased adoption. We've reached that fifty fifty point. Now nobody can certainly has managed to to tell me with confidence what's going to happen next. Is it going to top off? It almost inevitably it will at some point. It's not going to just march up to 100% and crash through that that uh, that barrier. But 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 where does it top off? Does it does it there are some people who fear it's already slowing down and that we may get to sort of 60%, 65% and that'll be sort of it unless something beyond the normal, you know, mechanism of the market 
is is put into place. Some are more optimistic and say, no, I'll get to 90% or so. Pretty much nobody thinks it's going to just get to 100% without some 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 hammering. Um, and that's where I guess, you know, governments need to come in most of all, but companies too. You know, we talk a lot, for example, to Facebook about how uh, their work in developing countries um, could be much improved by the, 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 the offer that they make to people, which a few years ago was something called Free Basics, which was quite widely criticized for being a kind of a, a mini version of the web that, uh, that, that uh, you know, was, was sold as a gateway to the whole web, but actually it was a, it was a, a small group of sites that were sort of engineered to be compliant with that. We've challenged them and urged them and encouraged them to think differently, and I think they are thinking differently about uh, a much more ambitious and, and more positive approach, which would enable people, because of uh, Facebook's work, to actually get onto the whole of the web without any uh, restrictions. And I think that's something they've been thinking about and hopefully are going are gonna, to uh, announce something on uh, pretty soon. Um, but those kind of changes are what I think will helped us to get to really everybody being able to access the web and it being truly for everyone as as it was intended to be. Uh, but what are the barriers to growth on that then? Is it is it partly governmental? Like I can't imagine the government of North Korea wanting their citizens to have access to the internet or, you know, if I was looking after a huge expanse of the African outback or the Australian desert, you know, there, there'll be technological yeah. uh, difficulties in connecting. There's, there's going to be lots of different there are. Uh, yeah. difficulties in, in getting this out there. Yeah, I mean, we tend to talk about sort of four barriers. Um, the first is that last one you mentioned, the technological one. Can you actually get a signal? Can you get a 3G or 4G signal or whatever that allows allows you to, to get broadband access. Now, actually, about two-thirds of the world can do that, but only half the world's online. So what's the reason for the difference? Well, that's the next three barriers. So the next one, then, is can you afford it? Uh, now, if you're... In... so obvious when you say it, but I actually never considered that in the question. Well, that's right. Fundamental. So, so we, you know, we do research that shows that if you are in Africa, you're paying about five times more for your data, for the same amount of data, as uh, someone in Asia. And in Asia, you're spending more than you would in Europe or in North America. And is that profit? Sorry to interrupt, but is that profiteering or is that reflection of the, the genuine increased base costs? It's mainly the latter. Um, you know, that there, if you're in a very, uh, a very sparsely populated rural area, which is, can be true, of course, in, in Scotland or in Texas, as well as in, uh, you know, uh, rural Kenya, um, then the costs are higher. Sometimes it's about government policies and whether they actively encourage competition and, and, and companies to come and invest and so on. There's all sorts of things. But affordability is one really important thing. But then you find, you know, and this is, gets really interesting. You, you can say, right, you, you can connect to the web and you can afford it. But sometimes people still don't connect. Why is that? Well, the next challenge is skills. Do people have the skills? Fairly basic skills, but nevertheless, skills that, that not everybody does have. Or Again, another have. thing I forgot in my That's question. Right. Yep. Fundamental. Amazing. There you go. Um, and so there, there's a need for widespread digital literacy programs. And we support some of that work around the world, especially engaged uh, in getting greater literacy for policymakers, for people in parliaments and so on around the world. And is it chicken and the egg as well? Because you can't gain digital literacy skills until you've got some access to the internet. That's right. That, that, that's one of the challenges. So we have to sort of break that cycle. Um, and then the, the final one, which is the, the least tangible of all, is, uh, is, is what about the content that's online? So if you can afford it and if you've got a signal and you've even got the skills but there's nothing online on the web that's in your language uh, or that's relevant to your community or your country, then why are you going to go there? Uh, and that's why the web has to be 
as it was originally envisaged, uh, truly bottom up and 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 truly a, a a space where people create as much as they consume. Uh, because if we've got creators of content in you know the the most uh, remote parts of uh, of the world, for perhaps a fairly small group of people, um, then that is what's going to make the web even more relevant and meaningful and 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 get us over that last barrier. In fact, there was a, I was in. Um, in a fairly remote part of Indonesia uh, last year, um, where there'd been a, a major uh, typhoon that had gone through that part of the world a few weeks earlier, and uh, and it had in the part of Indonesia I was in, which is a couple of hours away from uh, Jakarta, there'd been some damage uh, caused by the storm to a bridge just outside, a few miles away from the the village I was in, uh, and it was a key route to get to the market, I think, and and the school and so on. So it was causing quite quite a problem. Now in the village uh, that I was in, uh, there was a, a, a kind of a, an old uh, uh, computer in a sort of little committee room in the middle of the sort of little kind of parish hall kind of thing, uh, in the middle of the uh, of the community. Um, which was hooked up to the internet and which had a, a village website that somebody had set up with a little small grant, I think, from the local local municipal authority. Um, and the website had uh, live updates, or at least regularly posted updates, on how the repairs were going at the bridge a few miles away. So people were coming in and taking a look and saying, OK, well, so maybe Thursday we might be all right. And, uh, um, and they were posting photos of her. Useful. The, yeah, really useful. And, Actually useful. <laughs> absolutely. And meantime, of course, some people were also on Facebook and they were in touch with their friends the other side of the bridge and saying, well, how's it looking from your side? And, and so, you know, you saw these kind of um, really grassroots kind of micro solutions sitting alongside these big global uh, offers and actually, you know, both of them being compatible with each other. And another kind of 50-50 split, obviously, is, is, is gender. I mean, is getting women and girls online in the developing world, is that, that must be part of a, a vital part of opening up digital culture. Yeah, it really is. It's an absolutely key thing. We have a, a program at the Web Foundation called Women's Rights Online for exactly that reason. Um, you know, what we find, our research shows, is that uh, women are less likely to be online in the first place. And they're less likely to be doing certain things online, less likely to be applying for a job online. That's uh, what our research shows. They're less likely to be expressing a strong opinion on social media and, you know, seeing some of the ways in which uh, some women bloggers uh, are targeted, you can see why. Um, to be honest, I'm fatigued with anyone expressing any opinion on social media <laughs> these sure. days. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, exactly. Um, but, you know, in some places and at some times, um, it's absolutely critical, isn't it, that people are able to, whether they're, uh, whatever their gender, whatever their background, are able to really express themselves in a way that, yes, is kind of respectful of others, but is really clear and, and direct and and. Uh, and true to themselves. So we do see that uh, gender divide online. Um, and it's one of the things we're, we're really determined to try to, to help overcome. And the first task there, I think, is just making people aware of it, um, particularly policymakers. And, you know, I think we've made great progress with, with governments around the world in the last few years, long way to go still, in getting a better understanding of gender in relation to getting kids in school, for example, or, uh, uh, you know, uh, representatives in parliament and so on. Um, still further to go in most places. Um, but we're we're well behind that in terms of getting that thinking applied to people being online. So I think that's that's a that's a real area for us to do some some good public education over the next few years. What do you do? You know, what is your job? What's a typical week? How do you how do you divide your time? 
Well, so as as CEO of the Web Foundation, uh, I don't really have a job. You know, everybody else does. They're all the smart ones, and I kind You're of. You're the conductor of the orchestra. I like to think so. Yeah, uh, I think they probably would play the tune pretty well without yeah. me. Um, but uh, I mean, I I try to build a really. Uh, a really great team, and I, I have a wonderful team, 30 people around the world in 12 different countries, uh, who uh, almost all of whom, uh, because they're so, thi- so thinly spread, don't actually see each other except on a, on a, on a video screen, um, on Skype or whatever. So we've got quite a dispersed team, and part of my job is to, to bring all those together. I try to do my job in uh, representing the organization. You know, we've got to go raise money. We don't have a an endowment. We don't uh, have a um, a founder who's made a billion dollars from uh, from the internet because, of course, he actually gave the web to the world for free. Um, so we have to, you know, we have to go and bang on doors and go see foundations. I've and seen Tim on the TV. He doesn't wear uh, Savile Row suits, does he? He doesn't. No. I wonder if he secretly does on a on a, on, a, on a Saturday evening, perhaps. I, I doubt it. Um, no, you're right. Uh, we've we've got this incredible icon as as our founder who. Um, who really kind of lives those values um, that, that the web at its best represents. So I try to I try to represent that. Um, I I've spent what have I done today? I mean I've been I've been working on this contract for the web. Uh, we've been looking at some of the policy issues that are coming up there, looking at kind of quite intricate things around the privacy agenda and so on, trying to figure out where there might be some common ground between the different partners there. Um, so you know it's a it's a it's a a job of bringing together a group of people and trying to accompany them on a journey where we try to achieve some some really good things and i guess that's that's about as much as i've done in my career <laughs> now i think about it um over over the last sort of 25 years or so ever since well going back a little further um, when I was a, a local radio DJ, that was my uh, that was, that was my go first job. career in a second. I, well, yeah, I feel very much at home sitting in front of this microphone. I'm, I'm sure um, you do. Presumably, you're more comfortable asking the questions rather than answering them. Yeah, well, I'm most comfortable just playing the Pet Shop Boys oh. in Erasure, who were who, who, in the late '80s in, uh, in on the south coast of England. Um, if you were a listener to Power FM, uh, that's Power what FM. you would have enjoyed. You've got, I don't say this to flatter you. You've got an incredible voice. Oh. Actually. I can tell how you'd be a good broadcaster. Well, that's very kind. I, I do feel, you know, just being in front of a microphone, you suddenly feel this sense of. Uh, you, know, you put on a kind of there is I do have a podcast voice it is me right. but it's just a little bit of a richer deeper version right. of me you, I think it's the acoustics of the studio as well isn't it it's quite you know I used to uh, I was only sort of 18 19 when I was on the radio um, but I my my main for, for two years or so I did the late show I did the nine o'clock at night till one in the morning. Wow, the graveyard um, shift. What? No, no. I start on the. That's the one till oh, six in the morning. Is, forgive me. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> this is pre-graveyard. This is, graveyard, this yeah. is on pre, the way to the. Graveyard. We're all pre-graveyard. Exactly. I think. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it was that sort of late night intimate thing, and I and I'm sure that. Um, uh, yeah, I kind of. Alan's uh, deep bath. Do you remember uh, Alan oh, Partridge? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> A hero to us all. Uh, indeed, indeed. <laughs> my my team say I'm half Alan Partridge and half David Brent, and I take that as a compliment. Yeah, I think that's that's yes. Yeah, hard to say which of those halves is um, is your favourite, or do you do you have do you have a sense? I, I don't. Anyway, yeah. let me let me get back to the questions because you, you're very good at the, answering the questions because you, you're prompting further questions for me, which is kind of doing my job for me. But you mentioned your funding in the, in the last answer. I mean, who does fund you? Who is writing checks for you guys? 
Well, we have some great funders, uh, including um, some foundations like the Ford Foundation, who have been great supporters of ours over the, over the years. Uh, the Amidia Network, which uh, which some people know, do some do some great work and give us some wonderful support. We have some support from companies. We do have uh, grants from Google, from Facebook, uh, from uh, Microsoft, and and a few others. And when they hand you the check, do they give you a wink and say, "Go easy on us"? No. Uh, well, at least I, I haven't noticed them say it, and if they do say it, we ignore it. No, I, they don't. They don't ask that, and they wouldn't get it. Um, we're absolutely clear that we take money and we say thank you very much, and the only reward you get is, uh, you know, in heaven. Um, well, it's in their ultimate interests for you to succeed, is it not? I think so. Yes, and I think that's what they think. And and uh, you know, I think there are plenty of companies, including some of the big companies, who. Many of the people in those companies sincerely believe that they are doing something really good for the world um, and that they're encouraging, fostering creativity and expression and, uh, and knowledge and so on. And that's 100 percent in line with with what we're trying to do at the Web Foundation. And um, uh, and yes, of course, also, you know, frankly, the more people that are online, the, the bigger the market there is for, for some of those companies to 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 reach out to. But their support for for the Web Foundation is something that we appreciate and we never take for granted. Um, but uh, but it also is always applied just to our broad operations. It's not uh, you know we don't take um, something from a company saying you know you could do how about you know, you, you do this little project with it that would be really relevant to our our interests or whatever. We say you know if you want to get behind the mission, you want to get behind the 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 team, then that's fantastic, and we really welcome your support. Uh, but we'll apply that uh, those funds in whatever's the best way to take that mission forward. And what does success look like for you guys? I mean, I know you've got the, the mission, but how would you how would you define, say, ten years from now, whether it's succeeded or not? I mean, we spoke about the fifty fifty ratio earlier. It, it, do you have metrics? Say, ten years from now, if you've succeeded, it will be fifty five forty five, or that more, you know, certain percentages of more women will be online, or developing countries will have better access. How, how do you actually know whether you're doing a good job and whether you're on track? Truthfully, we don't look quite that far ahead at the moment because, frankly, who knows where we're going to be in 10 years. I don't know where I'm going to be next week. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But uh, but we do, over the next couple of years, have a sense of wanting to see more people being online, but then also those sort of quality indicators that are harder to pin down. It's it's much easier just to to count the numbers of people that are are online, and we do do that, Um, but also to to see where we're making progress on uh, greater privacy protections, greater action to combat uh, disinformation online, uh, to stop governments who are shutting down the internet in different parts of the world. And, you know, the, the reason why, I guess, we feel we can hold ourselves accountable to, to some of those metrics, which arguably are, uh, you know, the job of governments and big companies and so on to, to, to actually act on, is because the way we do our job is to seek to educate and engage with those, those, those actors, those governments, those companies. Um, you know, we don't go out there as, as 30 people around the world and dig any trenches to put fiber optic cable in. We don't go out and actually you know, uh, connect people to the web ourselves. We see the value of our small um, organization being in uh, engaging with those who have the power to, to achieve these, these, these big goals that we've set. And you know, that's 
been my experience throughout my my work. You know, previously when 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 I've worked, for example, with the One Campaign, which I led in Europe for a few years, that's Bono's organization working on um, seeking to end extreme poverty. Um, and as part of that, trying to get governments in Europe and, and, and elsewhere to, to commit more aid money. Well, in the European countries um, that I was responsible for in, in the five years or so that I was there, we got a 27% increase in that aid, uh, which meant literally tens of billions more going into vital life-saving projects. We could never have done that. Even even Oxfam, even Save the Children, even big organizations like that know that on their own they can't have that kind of impact unless they engage with, uh, with, with the really big players and companies and governments who, when you put them together, can reach the, the billions of people and have huge impact. So that's what we do. We'll go through Ikra in a second, actually, but I just wanted to finish off on a, a couple of questions on the foundation. What, what's your relationship like with uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee? If you're Darth Vader, is he like uh, Emperor Palpatine? Is he there like as your key advisor behind the scenes? How does it work? Um, he's, that was a terrible analogy, wasn't it? Yeah, you're stretching my uh, <laughs> my, my Star Wars uh, <laughs> familiarity there. Who's the little the little wise? Oh, that's Yoda. No, yeah, Darth Vader's the big Yoda bad ring. guy. So he's you. You're CEO of the, yeah, the yeah, uh, evil yeah. empire. Okay, but uh, Palpatine was his key advisor, the founder, the the the, the power behind the power. Yeah, he's he's the power in front of the power. I would say Tim is Tim is is out there and is very busy, very active. I mean, he has a lot of other things that he's doing as well as working with us at the Web Foundation. Uh, but he's just a you know he, he's he's on our board. He's a very active member of the board. Um, he's in touch you know on a sort of weekly basis. Uh, we talk about all sorts of ways that we want to try and take this this uh, this effort forward. I mean, the, the contract for the web that we talked about. He's very committed to that, very close to that. He's got involved in some of those quite detailed discussions, and he's, as you'd expect from somebody who, who thirty years ago, uh, um, you know, kind of captured a a stroke of genius in himself and and created this thing that we now all take for granted. He's a, he's a brilliant mind. He his brain runs at a thousand miles an hour. Um, uh, everyone, str- I think, I hope everyone struggles to keep up because I certainly do. Um, and uh, and he, 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 it's it's a great privilege to to work for him and alongside him. Um, I'm inspired by his success, but it also makes me feel pretty crap and like as a total loser because like I've never created anything. Do you know what I mean? He's changed absolutely. humanity for the better, and I've done absolutely nothing other than get yeah. on a delayed train back to Milton Keynes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, but he's also incredibly uh, down to earth, very humble guy. Um, has a, a, a very sort of you know the kind of life that that you know we all can um, relate to, you know, with family and with friends, and uh, you know. Going home at the weekend and going out for a run and and going for a swim, things like that. You know, he's 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 a great uh, he's a great guy. And just for the final few questions of the podcast, could we go through your career? I mean, did you always want to do this? Did you you know you started at Power FM? Did you always want to be a DJ? How did you actually uh, you know end up doing what you're doing? Walk us through so the, the the actual journey. Well, I got involved in the radio thing straight out of school. Didn't go to college. Um, uh, I in fact had my first graveyard shift uh pre-graveyard no no well i did start uh, on the graveyard no i'm right, accepting okay. i did start yeah, literally right. at four in the morning uh just before i was 18 so um wow. uh, precocious uh, you could say that um <laughs> i probably was a little too precocious um did that for five years and loved it and it was a great time to be in radio um in the late 80s early 90s uh it was a lot of fun um but i then thought i, I want to kind of 
I want to go and learn something. I got myself on a on a uh, university course. I went to college in London, um, studied politics, uh, just because it was something I was interested in. I probably I probably thought at that point that I would come back into broadcasting in some form, but a little bit more serious than playing records. Um, but then, in the course of, uh, of of being at college, got interested more and more in the political side. Ended up working for an MP when I came out of uh, out of Stephen university. Timms. Stephen Timms, yeah, oh, no, Stephen, very he's, very nice man. He's very a very committed. very nice man. It's still there amazingly uh he's one of the great survivors in politics and uh, yeah very very good guy and a great boss to work for a very generous man um and uh did that for a few years was around for the 1997 election so i was sort of you know handing out placards on mitchum common and, and stuff like that and were you singing things can only get better do you know i heard that in my car would you believe just this weekend and I thought, oh my god <laughs> it's coming round again um I don't, I don't know what i felt about it didn't know what to feel about it brian cox still plays it when he does, does he? his world yeah i was well, in he? hollywood the other day i was at his <laughs> really? uh, cosmological lecture and he still plays it yeah. <laughs> That's great. No, that was a special time as well. I think there was a sense of hope and 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 optimism and you know justified optimism in what was then created over over several years. It's all gone downhill since then, basically. It's Tony got... did a great job for ten years, but then since then the whole thing's gone to pot. <laughs> well, in my view, it's certainly complicated. Um, <laughs> but uh, but for me, uh, what happened then was that uh, while I was working with Stephen in Parliament. Uh, we were doing a lot of work on international debt um, as he was on the Treasury Select Committee and they did an inquiry into it. And I got to hear about this thing called Jubilee 2000, which was a, a, at that stage a small campaign that had this idea of writing off all of these debts that, that the poorest countries in the world were paying to rich lenders in the US and Europe and had been paying over and over and over many years, compound interest, you know, and at the expense of, uh, of basic health care and primary education. You know, there was this crazy situation where, you know, countries were you know, 70 or 80 percent of their budget was going on interest payments to, to, to lenders. And some people, including the Pope, among others, had Hold the, the idea uh, yeah, uh, that had the idea that you could link um, that, that cause, cancelling the debts, which seemed like a, not just a moral cause, but also just made economic sense because you could get people back on their feet and they could, they could uh, build again. You could link that with the millennium, which was coming up, the year 2000, um, which was sort of lacking a bit of meaning for, for many people, at least, in the late 90s. And so I got involved with, this, with the campaign, Jubilee 2000, I, I was deputy director of the campaign. Um, we got uh, musicians involved. We went over to see Bono, and and he immediately got it and got involved and got excited. And Bob Geldof and and so on. Uh, we had the the you know the British music industry doing a big thing with uh, with, with with the campaign. I remember in in I think 1999 and Muhammad Ali was there and so on and and we built this this campaign that in the end got the what was then the G8 uh, had Russia in there in, the, in those days to write off um, about 95 billion dollars worth of debt um, and there are kids in school who've been in school uh, in the last 20 30 years um, as a direct result of the that. world as a direct result of that exactly so uh, awesome yeah I mean I, I that really opened my eyes I didn't know anything before that about about Africa about international development um, but it really you know I, I got excited and interested in it because it just seemed this great idea you know the idea of of using a moment to to pull off an incredible uh, result and arguably one that should have been done many many years earlier uh, but it hadn't had its moment in in the spotlight that really got me th- thinking that we could we could do more of that so jubilee 2000 was sort of the felt like the 
the the the acclaimed first album of uh, of of a new kind of activism and then a few years later when i was working with with oxfam we got together with lots of other organizations and did the make poverty history campaign which was sort of if jubilee 2000 was the the acclaimed first album i guess was the sort of the greatest hits compilation because uh, we just threw at it all all the old tricks that we knew um and we had people and you have to be over about 30 now to, to remember this, but uh, people wearing the, the white wristband and, it well. and all of that and Live 8 and so on. And that was, uh, you know, an amazing experience, and which, again, you know, got a, a big increase in, in, in aid for the poorest countries. Uh, a lot of focus on education and getting girls especially into school. So all of that, I guess, added up to, uh, for me, um, an experience of bringing together different and often unlikely alliances, you know, putting together a conservative backbench MP with a rock star um, or, uh, you know, the trade unions with the uh, with the with the business representatives and so on. You could you write know. a book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Did Bonner always wear sunglasses even when you saw him in like the office? Once or twice he's had them off. <laughs> <laughs> Just once or twice. But, uh, yeah, you know, I think it, it really taught me the power of um, of an idea, first of all, of an unlikely alliance. Uh, and well executed, of, though. Well, yeah, I guess, you know, you you, you got you to gotta follow through with the execution, haven't you? You know, there's probably plenty of great ideas um, that have founded for lack of that uh, that implementation. Um, and did that over over you know a few more years working with Oxfam and then with Save the Children running their campaigns and then, and then came to to one working with with Bono, and then in the last couple of years with uh, with the Web Foundation. Has Bono basically been involved in everything you've ever done? <laughs> Was he at Power FM? Were you just playing U two records? I, I did play their records. I remember actually. I never told him this, but I used to not that he would care, but I, I used to <laughs> I used to take the mickey out of, of of Bono we all just did didn't we and many people still do um, but I you know I, I remember um, playing <laughs> playing a, a, a U2 record in I guess 1988 and um, oh no that was it it was the Pet Shop Boys um, who did a cover of Where the Streets Have No Name. They did. We're getting, we're getting really into our uh, late 80s uh, musical history now. I bought West End Girls. Well, now that was, that was a proper song. Yeah, yeah. it's a tune. Uh, but they then did a cover of, um, of Where the Streets Have No Name by, by U2, which was deemed not to be the, the, you know, the most the glorious moment of Pet Shop Boys' career. And I saw uh, Bono um, being asked about it, uh, and he said, uh, he said, what have I? What have I? What have <laughs> what I done have I to done deserve this? this? And That's I thought, good. and I remember saying yeah, yeah. On, on my radio show, that was quite funny for yeah. Bono. <laughs> I had this presumption that he was sort of you know, humorless uh, rock star. Uh, and in fact, that's that's uh, in my experience not true at all. He's, uh, he seems to get un- he seems to get a lot of criticism just out of uh, a lot of people sneering at him for just for wanting to make the world a better place and for doing something about it. Yeah, you know, I, we're all human and we all make mistakes. Um, but I, it, it baffles me how, you know, someone like him, it, 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 the way he's perceived, he could be, like you say, he could be sitting on a beach somewhere just spending money and he chooses to to have a go at trying to, to you know, do his bit in making the world a bit better. Um, and in my experience, entirely with uh, with with absolutely good intentions and and a lot of very smart strategy too um and some incredibly uh impressive connections that he's built over the years um i remember you know back when we were doing the the drop the debt the jubilee 2000 stuff we we were going to do the first visit over to 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 washington um together 
uh, to lobby in Congress. And Bill Clinton was the president, but the Republicans were in control in Congress. And we didn't have many friends on the Republican side in those days. And, and Bono said, well, we need, to, we need to find some people that we can talk to. So um, he talked to his friend Bobby Shriver, um, whose sister was Maria Shriver, whose, whose then Arnold husband was Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger, who was in the Republican world, of course. And Arnie told uh, Bono to talk to a guy called John Kasich, who at that stage was the House Budget Committee chair, and of course, you know, has had a long political career and on the right. In, it's always uh, who he knows, isn't it? Yeah. So you know, a couple of weeks later, we ended up sitting down with John Kasich, and uh, as I recall, the first conversation they had was about. Uh, Radiohead and whether Kid A or OK Computer was the better album. Yeah, that's um, an obvious answer to that. <laughs> indeed. Well, which way are you going? I'm, I'm not prepared to discuss it. <laughs> I'll thank you to mind your own business. <laughs> um, and and from that uh, that curious start, they forged a, a, a kind of an understanding, and we got the Republicans on board. Uh, with a lot of what we wanted to do with uh, with debt relief in the US as well. Incredible. What's next for you? And I can't imagine you you wanting to leave, but there must be another chapter to come at the, at the right point. I don't know. I'm nearly fifty. You've aged well, if you don't mind me saying <laughs> so. You kind. look good. We both do, kind. in fairness. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm I'm loving what I'm doing, um, and all I want to do really is to continue to be useful. Um, you know, I think it's like a, all, all of us. We we want to do right by our families and, and enjoy the time we have with our families, right? We, we want to, you know, try and be healthy and get out in the fresh air and, uh, you know, keep a little bit fit and so on. And we want to do work that is that, that feels, you know, worthwhile and meaningful. And that doesn't mean you have to be sort of saving the world all the time. Um, you kind of are. We kind of have. In many well, ways. Yeah, but what I mean is, you know, I think you also have to. Uh, I I think it's also right not, not just to look for kind of this this sort of greater good of, of of what you do, although that is important, but also that you do something that you love and that that feels like it's you're able to express yourself. Yeah. Would you bring back Power FM? Oh, uh, in a heartbeat. Um, uh, we could get some funding together, some seed could funding. We could? Yeah, we could launch as an online it operation. Wouldn't, it wouldn't cost Power. too much. Power FM. <laughs> it could be online only. DAB. I, I'm I'm there. I will do the graveyard shift if you need me to. Pre graveyard, Adrian. All right, yes, yes. I'll do the graveyard shift. <laughs> Adrian, it's been a huge pleasure to have chatted with you. I've been inspired by what you've said, and uh, you know, keep up the amazing work. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. A right angles podcast in association with Big Things Media.